Did you know that the average human spends 92,000 hours at work during their lifetime? That's more than we spend eating, cleaning, driving, watching TV, or even surfing the internet. In fact, work is what we do most. It comes second only to sleeping. Welcome to 92,000 Hours, the podcast that believes in the integration of life and work. I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb. Before we begin, I wanted to tell you a quick story about why this podcast is so personal to me. I began practicing law at age 26 and learned many valuable lessons, including that I was deeply unhappy at work. Although I was on a path that looked like traditional success, I realized that I needed to quit my job in order to align myself with my passion and purpose. Now I am dedicated to making sure all of our 92,000 hours at work are spent well instead of simply spent. How do we construct a working world that values and accommodates our humanity? How do we construct a life that is not separate from, but fueled by, the purpose we find in our work? In this podcast, we will explore those questions and more. In each episode, I will speak to someone that demonstrates meaning, passion, and purpose in their work. Join me in discovering what happens when we bring our whole selves to our work, schools, and communities. This week, I am joined by Dr. Richard Chapman. Richard is an economics professor and director of the Coaching and Mentoring Center at Westminster College. He is also involved in consulting and coaching for higher education institutions, corporations, and nonprofits. In this episode, we will learn about Richard's core values and how they inform his work as an educator, mentor, and boss. Hi. Hello. So we just introduced you by talking a lot about what you do. Uh, and of course, these things are connected. But this question is about who you are. Okay. So the question is this. If you remove any reference to work, school, sports, volunteerism, church activity, or research interests, what is your greatest accomplishment? Or what are you most proud of yourself for as a human being? I've asked that question quite a few times in interviews. I've thought about it quite a few times. Uh, So my answer kind of puzzled me when I came up with it. Hmm. But I think uh, the thing I'm proudest of is that I found the courage to get a divorce from my first marriage. That's fascinating. Which sounds odd, but I've thought about it a lot, and that was a difficult decision. There was no history of divorce in my family on either side for generations. Wow. Uh, my mom and father both taught that it is your duty, once you're married, to stay in it and to make the best of it. And... Got married too young and drifted apart. And for years I wanted to leave the relationship, but I stayed out of duty for the children and because I was worried about my partner. And I had spent a life trying to minimize her stress and maximize the happiness of everyone else. And I just... I just had this epiphany one day that I have the right to be happy Mm. and that I shouldn't count on 
uh, like the traditions of my parents that angels on high are tracking my sacrifice and I'll be <laughs> rewarded <laughs> because I went, man, I am miserable and I have the right to be happy. Ooh. And and in a way, I also, you know, I was enabling my partner not to grow. And uh, so, yeah, that, that decision was not easy and it was difficult. My family had an intervention wow. and it was ugly. Uh, but you went through with it. But went through with it and and I, I told myself I'm going to keep those relationships with my children and, and help them financially and be there for them when they need it. And I ended up finding happiness and found someone else that I w- was a much better partnership and better for me. And so, yeah, it had a good ending to it. But it was so brave in the meantime. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a really hard thing to do. So it's really interesting because when you talk about making that decision, we've decided in advance that this conversation we're going to have today is going to be about values. And even in that, in talking about that decision and being proud of yourself, there there are values that were caught up in that, like the the values of your parents and the values of your family and the values that you had and then the value that you put toward intrinsic happiness and like there's a lot yeah in that. yeah yeah and and I, I do think ultimately it was a conflict of values that mm. that led to the divorce that's so interesting yeah and it did you come up with that just to fit into this subject matter today <laughs> no, no I, i'm a processor i think way too much about things and i've thought about it for years yeah and uh yeah i i, I realized I wasn't being true to myself. Uh, uh, maybe an image of what my parents think is good, but I don't know if it was something I owned. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really awesome. So as I just mentioned, we're, we've agreed that we're going to talk about an overarching subject in our conversation will be values, and then different things will come out, but we're talking about that. Um, and I, I'm interested in just talking about your own thoughts on that subject matter generally. Like, what do, what do, I don't know, what do core values mean to you? Or how do you even define what values are? <laughs> yeah, they're, I, I think they're the essence of who you are. So I'll tell you my three. Okay. Uh, my three are the same. Uh, it, I've taken tests on this like 30 years ago and they've never changed. Most people's change a little bit. Uh, but mine are, and you, and you know me, so they'll make sense. Uh, I rank them actually in order. Humor, <laughs> relationships, and joy. Hmm. And uh, I, I think those are truly my core values. When I deviate from them, I have trouble. That makes a lot of sense. Do you think that with those three values... Are they the same for you, regardless of whether you're thinking about your personal values, your professional values, your community values? Like, are they all, is it similar? Yeah, yeah. So I'll give you two examples. So uh, in, in thinking, because I do a lot of discussion for companies about core values and being true to those. But a, a good example is humor. So that's not a typical one, mm-hmm. but it's critically important for me. 
And uh, when I was in my 20s, I was working for an organization and I had been designated as a future leader. And the, the CEO calls me in and he says, I think you could climb to great heights in this organization, but you have one problem. You are way too much of a joker. You're always having fun times. You're always being humorous. And it's not our vision of a leader. Uh, he said, look at our organization. Uh, they have a lot of the skills you have, but they're serious. And at the time, you know, this is the early 70s, uh, and they're all men, right? And so serious men, right? <laughs> and so he said, I'm going to give you a challenge. And he said, for the next two weeks, I want you to work here without being the funny guy. Okay, so for two weeks, I did not crack a joke. I didn't tell any humorous You did stories. it. I did it. Yeah, I can do it if I really have to. <laughs> and he, he calls me in at about 10 days in. And he said, everybody is complaining. He said, customers that know you are complaining that you're not. Uh, and are, are you okay? And your team members, every one of your team members have come in. The person that supervises you has come in. Uh, one of the vice presidents has come in and said, what's wrong with Chapman? Do we need to look into, you know, if, if there's something wrong in his family life or whatever? And he said, it is too much who you are. So don't change that. But you'll never be at the top of this organization. Wow. And I went, that's, that's good to know because I shouldn't be here. Did you leave the company? Not right away, but yeah. As soon as I got an opportunity, I did. Well, it certainly provides you with feedback that that is authentically you. That yeah. that, that is a, an important value. My, my question that I had right out of this is that uh, from an outside perspective, I see all of these values being central to the overarching value of human connection. Yeah. Um, let's it's, see, and that's you. <laughs> Sometimes. The one, so all, all gifts, all skills are two-edged sword. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I've discovered is not everyone loves the funny guy in the room. And, and that's been hard because the, not only do I like to connect with people and have authentic relationships, but I do want people to like me. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, third son... <laughs> I need people to give me attention and love me. And there are people that do not like that side of me. And, and so that's just, you know, how is it that, is sometimes. Is that something that is painful for you? Sometimes. I, I've had people work on teams with me, uh, uh, under me in, in organizations, and and they've said at the end of working together, man, that was really hard. You're just too funny. <laughs> 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 Which, uh, you know, I guess that's a, an insult. I don't know. To me, that's a compliment. If you think about the, the people that I'm close with at work. or yeah, They're funny. They're funny. Or witty, at least. Witty, yeah. <laughs> and, and my second wife, that was like the most important criteria, and, and she passed She nailed it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about humor. I... I I went to your page on Rate My Professor as a quick review prior oh, to this interview. Uh -huh. And humor is mentioned in one way or the other over and over and over again by your past students. What is that like for you? 
<laughs> well, I I haven't been there for a long time. It's so still I there. I trust okay. me. It's that it's right. It's front and center still. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, I think when I read things like that or in teacher evaluations, you know, like oh, we learned a lot and it was and he was funny. Then I I went okay yeah Yay. I did my job so. I taught a class in the spring, and it was a lovely class. A small bunch of students, all very motivated, and we had a lot of fun, and we learned a lot. And I finished up the, the last lecture, and there was some time left, so I was talking about the final exam. And, and a student said, can I just say I loved this class? Uh-huh. And we have just enjoyed coming to class, and we're going to miss it. And I said, well, you know, we can do barbecues or whatever. <laughs> you know, I, and I, just like Sunday night, I had two alumni over to the house and had a barbecue with them. Nice. And, and it's, yeah, I, I think if you keep those core values, so for me, relationship, so they're, they're going to develop, and that then, yeah, I think you can find it. Results and, in your joy. Yeah, and it just that just made me so happy that the students were kind of like, can we just keep going another semester? <laughs> they probably lovely. said it to get a better grade, but I'm going to believe it was honest. That's a wonderful <laughs> answer. I love to hear about you putting those values to work in ways that also provide not only joy for you in your life, but also for the people that you work with. Does your value for humor inform your passion or purpose for the work you do now? Yeah, I think so. I'm definitely in teaching, uh, definitely in relationship building. Uh, Mentoring, I think humor has an important part of building those relationships. Where I struggle more is where, where we're getting into authentic, genuine, sometimes difficult and hard conversations that, you know, that are people are going through or, or that you're processing in self-growth and humor is not appropriate. And, and there's a part of me that always wants to diffuse, sort of like when everybody's crying, you <laughs> hug and that can stop the crying or give them a bottle of water. Uh, sometimes a good joke if it's like, man, this is getting a little deep or... Can make everybody get out of that. Go go place. back to the surface. Yeah, and there are times you need to go there, and so I have to put the my my initial response to almost anything is a joke, and so I I have to really work on controlling that tendency. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what about your other your other two values? What how do they show up in your personal or professional life? Well, relationships, I think, show up everywhere because that's, that's what matters to me. It's, you know, when I think of work, I don't think of tasks. I tend to think in terms of relationships. Hmm. Uh, relationship with students, relationship with faculty, relationship with staff. Uh, I don't dwell too much on relationship with administrators. Uh, However, you are one now. <laughs> yeah, that was it. What, what is it like? The to, plan went amiss there. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what is it like to um, to think about your value of relationships when it comes to being a supervisor or a boss? It's it gets tricky. Uh, the, 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 what's helped? So Richard thirty years ago versus Richard today is. 
realizing that relationships can be strengthened by serious, difficult conversations. Hmm. So one of the problems I had in my first marriage and all of my relationships earlier in my life is I would never have that difficult, hard conversation with someone. So if, if something was not working in the relationship, I would... Just ignore it. Ignore it. Yeah. Avoid it at all costs and be funny and have fun and not deal with it. And it took me a long time to realize that was a failing in me and was leading to fa- failings in relationships. And that having those serious conversations and working to resolve that actually strengthens the relationship. Mm, that's nice. So I thought I had deep relationships, but they were always because I avoided the deep problems. Um, what about joy? How does that show up in your passion for or purpose in your work? Uh, everything, if I don't get joy from it, I'm out of it. I won't do it. So uh, I, I love teaching. I get a lot of joy out of it. If it stopped being something I enjoyed, I, I would do something different. That's nice. Yeah. Um, corporate training is hard for me as an introvert, uh, just because you have to be so up and you have to play the role of an extrovert to be successful because you're up there and you have to kind of lead everything. And the cost of that emotionally, physically, is such that I, I, I don't know if I'm going to continue doing that. You know, I, I enjoy doing it. I, I enjoy seeing people learn and That's increasing their skill set. But it, it's at a cost that I, I'm not sure I could keep doing it. All right, so I want to maybe move this conversation to a wholly different place, but I can't help myself. Um, so I wanted to go to your work as an economist. Okay. Um, because we're in this moment right now, and we're talking <laughs> about values. And I rewatched your Westminster Thinks Big talk recently. Oh, yes, yes. And in that talk, you... Uh, presented on economic inequality. And I know that that is something that you study and you're interested in. And I'm, I'm interested in how your values um, over time or even at the beginning or now, how did your values tie into your study or interest in economic inequality or as a research interest or other research interests that you've been in yeah. working on? Yeah, that, that's, that's a complicated one thing that I've always kind of struggled with is uh, my parents are uh, ultra were ultra conservative, so I'll tell a story. I mean, my dad would hate this story if he was alive. But we were watching uh, my dad. I always watched Walter Cronkite, and we we're watching the nightly news. And there were uh, riots in L.A., and uh, they talked about the Black Panthers, and, and my dad, you know, was going off about it. And I remember thinking. If I lived there, if I was black, I'd be a Black Panther because the system doesn't work for them. Hmm. And when a system doesn't work for you, what other reaction would you have other than, you know, uh, pushing back? And and so I think my, my parents taught me to be empathetic, but I think their empathy had limits. And I didn't realize you're supposed to only have, like, Empathy for family, or kin, or tribe, and for me it was too general. So, to me it's kind of like um, 
But if you, 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 when you say you're supposed to, you just mean that that's how they believed, not yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there was a disconnect between what they taught me and what they were. Yeah. And, and so for me, it was like I bought into it, and I went, yeah, everyone should have empathy. We should love one another. And if you love one another, you would want to help those that can't help themselves or have different opportunities than those that have. And, I think you're yeah. getting to something that is really important to me that I think comes up a lot when we talk about values. And, it's, and, and I have this in some of the questions I wanted to talk about, but it really has a lot to do with... Uh, the difference between the values that we state and the values that we live and yeah. when they're when it's clearly inauthentic and what that can lead to and it's I, I think you're telling a story about being a, a kid and learning to grapple with seeing that in your family yeah it, it was like on Sunday we would preach you love one another and then <laughs> six days of the week my dad was a racist and yeah, and it was just yeah I I I believe those general principles, uh, even though I didn't see it lived. Do you think that, I mean, just that, you talked about the story of the, of the Black Panthers, and then you go into later um, researching economic inequality and generational poverty and things like that, right? Yeah. And the systems. Is that, am I right? Are yeah. You, is yeah. that something well, you... you you're exactly, it's just like my dissertation. Uh, my dissertation was on looking at people that had experienced welfare, mm -hmm. AFDC, and what led up to it and what happened after. Because uh, growing up in Orem, Utah, there was this cultural myth that, you know, these are lazy bums that won't work and they shouldn't be getting their welfare and why do we have it and it's horrible mm -hmm. and horrendous. And so I looked at the data, and and you realize that, you know, almost everyone uh, that, so I looked at 500 families that went on welfare in the 80s, and almost every one of them had a catastrophe uh, financially that led to this problem. So uh, the most typical one was divorce. And in yeah. the 80s, it was typical that if, if a husband divorced a family and left out of state, they didn't pay child support. And it, and it left a family, you know, economically uh, in trouble. And it was like, well, most of us would want welfare for that. Right. Right. Would it help someone who... Yeah. It, I mean, like 80% of the people that receive benefits from welfare are under the age of 10. Wouldn't we want to help them? And and, and so, yeah, it, it was uh, kind of getting rid of the myths that I think hurt us from seeing real issues. Nice. If this conversation has caught your attention and you want to join in on conversations like this, check out our website at connectioncollaborative.com. Welcome back. You're listening to 92,000 Hours, and today we're chatting with Dr. Richard Chapman about values. So let's jump back in. So uh, recently I read this article, a Harvard Business Review article, started with a list of values, and it had communication, respect, integrity, excellence. 
And the author went on to talk about how these words generally make us feel good. Those are nice words. Yeah, and they seem great like great corporate value statements. And then he drops this bomb that they are actually from Enron's value statements. <laughs> um, which, for our listeners that may not know, that's a company <laughs> that, to continue the bomb metaphor, uh, blew itself up through unethical and behavior and corruption. And I was, um, I'm interested in bringing up that idea of uh, corporate value statements um, and what that leads to. Like, uh, here's a here's corporate value statements. Here's our cynicism about them as employees. Um, how having inauthentic stated values within an organization could be even more detrimental than not having value statements at all. And you work with lots of companies. So you've yeah. probably seen this. What do you think about the role of value statements in general in our workplaces? I, I, they should and could be, I, I think, a powerful uh, tool for an organization. Culture is very powerful. And you have to always be aware of what your organizational culture is and, and all that. Uh, I do think there's a large disconnect for most organizations. So uh, I, I've... Which is unfortunate, but yeah, true. I, yeah. I, I imagine you're right. I've done so many corporate trainings where we've talked about, you know, they might have a core value of like acceptance. And yet conformity is what's valued most in their organization. And <laughs> the minute somebody would raise a voice of discord, uh, I'm not so sure it would be respected because the val the true value I see manifest is comply, fit in, and uh, yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting thing to watch. That is interesting. Uh, just from a where I sit, I wonder where one how difficult it might be as a leader to both you know understand a. Uh, uh, corporate or organizational values even those that might exist that you don't know about that are you know underneath the surface yeah as well as how to make sure that the values that matter to you as the leader are being lived in the organization are, are true to it and not just you know something on a shelf yeah I, I think the informal values that everyone embraces are much more important than the stated ones mm -hmm. and, and so Unless they could be the same. Yeah, I mean, well, ideally, that's what you'd want. I don't see a lot of organizations where that's true. Uh, what's difficult as an outside observer doing trainings mm -hmm. is it's very difficult to be very honest about what you're seeing. I bet. Because almost everyone will say, oh, yeah, we're, we do these core values and that. And as an outside observer, you can go, no. You actually don't. You actually don't. There's <laughs> something else going on here. But what's also interesting is they typically don't want to hear that as an organization. So what do you think that is about? Um, well, I, I think all those beautiful things that are usually in the core statement is what we want to believe that we are. Uh, so a good, good example is uh, Google has some amazing... Uh, core values and and they had a situation where uh, uh, an employee uh, sent out an email where he said uh, women programmers 
don't work as well in, in organizations as men and stated all these very uh, gender-specific stereotype reasons of why women were, in fact, inferior than men. And it, it, it was almost like one of those fun discussions on the Constitution. What do you do when there's two conflicting core mm-hmm. values? So uh, opinion and, and saying what you believe is valued there, but then that's not going to be okay to say, you know, uh, generalizations like that. And it was a very difficult thing for their organization. Oh, I love that, that, though. Like, just the, I mean, the whole story is difficult, but it the when you have conflicting values that show up and yeah. how to lead through that. How and, did they do? Um, well, I'll let you decide. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to go I, read I up it, on it. I, I think they did the right thing. But I think it's because there was a flaw in one of their core values. And that, that is, I think, you can't let that go. I don't think, uh, so like we believe in academic freedom in colleges and universities too. But there are times when that has to be superseded by something more important. Right. And, and in that case, I think, yeah, we, we value your opinion, but this is not acceptable. You, you know, to have these kind of generalizations. Right. So, um, what kind of a, uh, if you had to think about the, the value statements, the values of the classroom communities you built, what would that be like? Would it be similar to your own personal? Because you would, you know, you led in your classrooms. Yeah, I, I'd say that one difference is I, I try very hard to make sure that we're learning. So we have fun, uh, but we learn. And <clears throat> I remember a student years ago saying, uh, I, he said, you know, I was talking to some students that took your class last semester, and they said, you'll never laugh so hard in your life as in this class, but you better work hard because he demands a lot. Hmm. And, and so, yeah, I, th- I think that Demanding a lot is not in my three, but I do that with myself. I demand a lot in things I care about. There's a lot of things I can let slide. <laughs> as <laughs> you know. Important. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, if, if it's really important. So if, if somebody's paying the money to go to college, they should learn. Yeah, that and, makes sense. And they should be willing to work. And, and I do think, you know, speaking about mentoring, uh, if I could bring that in and coaching, people are at their best when they're pushed. And, you know, it's interesting. You, uh, you think back about teachers that you loved in junior high, high school, college. Uh, it's not the ones you were friends with. Hmm. I, I think it's always the ones that cared about you and pushed you. And so... I think that that's the... Uh, I, I just had a conversation with someone about her niece uh, coming to Westminster in the fall, and she was asking me questions about the college. And I told her that the value that our that the community has um, is of faculty who will both support you and see you as a whole person, really provide both support but challenge you to make you be your best. And I think that is a, a hallmark. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true too. I want to talk about your work with the Coaching and Mentoring Center. Um, with in your work there, 
or as a performance coach, um, you get a unique opportunity to interact with and witness other people really trying to either live out their values or grappling with or challenging or even defining what their values are um, from your vantage point there as a coach and a mentor what have you learned watching other people think about their values well yeah two things pop up in my mind one is uh identify your obstacles yeah i think there's most of us have patterns of what stops us from being who and what we want to be mm. or, or you know we, we fail at something what is it and what what we do a lot of times is we we get ourselves in circular thinking and you know it's it's like you can convince yourself this is just the way it is and it's a truth and so you never fix it mm. um, so so yeah that that that's one thing that that, that pops up the other is um, especially with coaching um, we, we learn in the, the coaching training that you and I both did that uh, people are whole and they have the answer. And what I found, you know, as a career, as a professor, uh, I learned very early, you have to know the answers. There's only so many times you go, I don't know that, I'll look it up, which you should do if you don't. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you just can't go into the classroom and not know what you're doing. You're supposed to be an expert. And what I found interesting about coaching was that you take that hat off and, and you're not there to be the expert. And, and so one of the, the things that was fascinating for me was allowing people to solve the problems themselves. Because it's, it's so easy to hear someone and go, oh, I know what their problem is and I know what the solution is. And that's not coaching. It's much more powerful to, to ask questions, to, to care, and invest the time that they find an answer. They're much more likely to do the answer if they think it up. Yeah. And, and what I discovered is I'm not the genius at solving problems. <laughs> <laughs> or your answer just might be different than their answer. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying is there's, there's times I'd go, oh, this is the answer, but I'll play this coaching game. <laughs> And ask questions yeah. and let them find what they think the answer. And the answer might be totally different, but it was the answer for them. Had yeah. I been doing what that, it probably was my answer. But yeah. Right, right. Um, I love that. As you know, I'm personally very passionate about the role of mentors in our lives. Have you had any particular mentor that was important to you? And what lessons did they impart? Yeah, I, I've had some, some key... I've never done formal mentoring. And I think it's because I'm an introvert and I'm afraid to ask. Hmm. Uh, so that's, that's one thing people should learn is ask. You know. and, and if you weren't an introvert, even at this stage in your career, are there people that you could identify that you could ask? Yeah. Awesome. yeah. I, I think that almost anybody can learn from other people. Yeah. Just another set of eyes on the problem can help. Uh, but yeah, I there's a few key people. Do you want me to talk about any of them? Or? You don't have to say their names, but but what about them? What what lessons did you learn from them? What what made them a good mentor? Well, you know the one story. So I had a leader that uh, 
uh, we, we had an interview and he uh, said, uh, Richard, you're, you know, in every measurement, you're the exemplary employee. But I know you're coasting. Hmm. And that surprised me because I didn't think anyone knew that. I knew that. But <laughs> I didn't think anyone else did. So it was so nice that this leader really saw you and knew you. Yeah. 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 For some reason, he was the only one I'd ever, for decades, identified that. And and he said, I want to give you a challenge. He said, I think you'll enjoy your career more, you'll enjoy work more, and you'll be more valuable to the organization. Not that you aren't, you know, your numbers are all great, but he said, find something that you feel passionate about, find a way to integrate it into what you're doing and do it. Hmm. And, and for me, that was like uh, a perfect mentor leadership. I needed to be called out, which he did, but not in a mean way, but you know, just like, you know, I know that this is the way you're, you're doing things. And then give me a challenge and said, you know, come back and tell me what you discover. And that's all I need. Give me a nudge. I'll do all the rest. And so that's how I got into coaching is I, I thought, you know, I went into academics because I wanted to change the world and help people realize their dream. And coaching is another great example of how people can do that. Awesome. Yeah, and it's all about relationships, and so yeah, then I brought and it back. Definitely the the overarching connection stuff that yeah that I, I care so much about. I want to check in with you. Are there things that we haven't talked about that you were hoping we would get to? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm just, just want to make sure. Flow. Good yeah. deal. They, they they're organic. Yeah, interviews are organic. Yeah. All right. So as we close, I wanted to go back to the theme of the podcast. This whole idea of the ninety two thousand hours. I thought that you would find these statistics fascinating because I, I've, I've recently looked at this, looked up this research that, you know, we spend the most of our time in life, we spend sleeping. After that, do you know that we spend, um, it's like, it's something like 27 of our years are sleeping. And then another seven years on top of that is tossing and turning. And trying to get to sleep. <laughs> I thought you were going to say napping. Isn't that sad, though? Like, that is a lot. We need to not spend seven years well, you, trying to get I to sleep. I love sleeping, but go ahead. Me too, but, like, yeah. trying to is a big yeah. not good yeah. use of our time. Yeah. But then after that, we spend 13 years at work. That is the average person that lives around 80 years. So 13 mm-hmm. of those years are at work. Compared to that, the next closest thing is 11 years, and it's, like, um, and it's screen time. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the amount of time that we spend with family and friends is down in the one digits. Like it's three to five years. Yeah, what I'd say is people need to reverse that. And, and I have. And I, I learned very early in life that an eight to seven, eight to five job wasn't going to work for me. And, and it was one of the things I found appealing about academics is... The work's different. I mean, there's still a lot of work in academics, but it's uh, it it feels different. Like my dad worked in a factory, yeah, and and that's a very different type of forty hours a week than I might do for forty hours a week. Right. Uh, you know, where I'm like part of my time is talking to students, or right? Reading or writing, and so yeah, which uh, is a lovely thing because you were able to find 
uh, your purpose, your passion in the in that time, so yeah. that those those years that you're spending feel good, feel yeah. not wasted. And because relationship is so high, I can tell you, I get a lot more hours of relationship <laughs> than probably than, than the normal, normal person, <laughs> and that's good. So that's what we have for today. Well, thank you. Thank you so that much for this fun. interview. I, I think that our audience will love it. And in fact, I'm sure of it. And I learned a lot about you. So thank you. Thank you to Richard for his candor and, of course, humor today. And thank you for joining us for this week's episode. I hope you all found it as enlightening as I did. You can learn more about Richard by connecting with him on LinkedIn, and you can find a list of his publications on Google Scholar. Next time, we'll speak with Andrew Taylor about expectations and risk. As an entrepreneur, Andrew shucked the expectations of his family, society, and even his own expectations of himself to start an outdoor adventure therapy program in Costa Rica. As always, thank you for listening to 92,000 Hours. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. We really appreciate your support. If you're interested in integrating the personal and professional through authentic conversation, just like you heard on our episode today, please check out our work at Connection Collaborative. You can find us at connectioncollaborative.com or send me an email at annalisa at connectioncollaborative.com. Thank you and see you next week on 92,000 Hours. Ninety Two Thousand Hours is made possible by Connection Collaborative. This episode was produced and edited by Brianna Stegel and Lexi Banks. I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb.